Vicara, Greg Henry, and two guests. We're doing the November issue of Risk Management Monthly. We've got on the line Greg Moore. Greg's been with us in the past. Greg is at Madigan. He's at one of these MDJD kind of guys. Well, not only that, he's an MDJD BFD. So, I mean, it's like really <laughs> important to have him here. Well, you know, today is Veterans Day, and it's uh, only appropriate that we have. Uh, and we have also Pete Moffitt, who got out of the military about four months ago. And so thank you both for your service. We're, what we're doing this month is focused on an article that these gentlemen wrote in Academic Emergency Medicine. Guys, what's the name of your paper? Sure. So this is Pete Moffitt, and I uh, wanted to say hi, and thanks for having us both on here. The article is called What Emergency Physicians Should Know About Informed Consent, Legal Scenarios, Cases, and Caveats. It was published in Academic Emergency Medicine in the August uh, edition of this year. Uh, Pete, I should also acknowledge that you are for, from Virginia Commonwealth University. So this is the miracle of Skype. We got, we got Michigan, we got Washington State, we got uh, Virginia and Southern California here. Let's just hope this whole thing holds together. Listen, why don't you guys go through the, your, your paper and kind of give us the uh, the highlights. First, I'm going to just say that there are a couple other authors that were instrumental in the publication. One of them is also in the Army at uh, Fort Gordon is Augusta, right, Pete? Is that where? Yes. Fort, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's Cyril Fighter and then another down at Fort Hood, Malia Moore. So they, they were helpful on the project, and we wanted to acknowledge them. Thank you. I would also like to acknowledge that uh, Malia Moore happens to be Greg's daughter and was one of my residents uh, a couple of years ago. And it turns out that, uh, like any good daughter, she doesn't actually know anything about her father. I knew his lectures better than her. And also, uh, very routinely, I would ask her questions about what would your dad do in this situation. And she would mostly stare back at me blankly. And uh, I, I'm not actually sure she knew that he was an emergency physician for the last <laughs> well, couple of years. That's better than having her... <laughs> That's better than having her whimper and say he'd whimper and cry and stamp his feet. So really, this, is, this isn't so bad. Sometimes you don't want your kids to know everything about you. And by the way, I have lectured at Fort Hood. And uh, whether you know it or not, gentlemen, it is the largest armor base in the free world. And I asked one of the non-coms there, I said, how big is this base? He said, 70 miles long, sir. I said, why 70 miles long? He says, because when you miss with a missile, it's got to go somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, whenever you get to base, they started with welcome to the great place. And that was sort of their base greeting. And some of us would joke it was psychological warfare since you were in the middle of nowhere. And the anticipation was that you would eventually break down and believe it was a great place. And once I got there, one of the ladies that sort of signed me into base said, you know, even on a bad day, my husband says great has several meanings, including very large. And Fort Hood is always very large. Yes, that's exactly right. So if we wanted to jump into some of the cases here, if uh, we'll go through, and I think uh, we'll probably refer back to some of the older legal stuff as we go. But these are sort of part of the part of the paper was really trying to pull out some maybe odd cases or scenarios that uh, listeners might not have uh, heard of before, or readers might not have, have thought of before when it comes to informed consent, because our common take on it really has to go down to oh, when we're going to do a procedure. Should we uh, go ahead and inform the patient about this or that, get them to sign the form? And there's actually a lot more to it than that. So some of these cases are sort of uh, pretty interesting, but they have a little different take in the way the courts are sort of looking at informed consent now. So um, 
I think maybe we'll just sort of go in order of some of the things we saw in the paper, and uh, I'll, I'll sort of present a case, and then maybe ask for a little discussion. And then we'll talk about what the court cases or the, uh, the the courts actually said about each one. So the the first case is uh, Pugsley versus Prevet, and in, the facts of the case are that a woman, Miss Prevet. Uh, wanted to have surgery performed by Dr. Pugsley, who is an OBGYN, and, but she insists that her general surgeon, Dr. Hall, is present for the surgery. And essentially, the surgery is supposed to be an exploratory surgery with possible removal of her ovaries because of some vaginal bleeding. And she makes it clear to everyone several times, even after she signed the consent form and said that she wants the surgery, that she would like Dr. Hall present during the surgery. There's even a great quote from her uh, from the, the testimony that said that she really wanted Dr. Hall there. She said, Dr. Hall had done uh, a surgery on me and I just wanted nothing taken out of that that didn't need to be, nor did I want anything put in that was not necessary. Dr. Pugsley is a GYN doctor and so he knows GYN, but I wanted a surgeon present. <laughs> and so we discussed this. Uh, and hopefully no OBGYNs are listening because uh, I'm pretty sure they'd be annoyed with this lady. But anyway. Um, well, now, wait a second. GYN people do surgery. They have four surgeries. Cut the right ureter, cut the left ureter, <laughs> take it out from above, take it out from below, and nick the bowel. So actually, that's five surgeries. Come on, give them a break. <laughs> Fantastic. So it turns out, actually, of course, that one of those complications did occur. <laughs> so you were right <laughs> of course. The money. Uh, she had a nicked ureter, and the details of her care after that are, are pretty complicated, and a lot of sepsis, and eventually she did do okay, but she was in the hospital for many months. And the crux of the issue was that Dr. Hall was never there. He never came in, even though that she insisted that he be there. And so what happened was they, they sued. Uh, and she even said that, I don't want to be put to sleep if he's not there, and they put her to sleep. Correct. It was, you know, she made it known to everyone, anesthesia and everyone, that I don't want to be down until Dr. Hall is here. And even better, I have a great line from her from the trial. She said, I do not want to be put to sleep until he gets here. And at that moment, I felt the sodium pentothal hit my vein and I remember nothing else, which is a, a great line from that. So essentially, what happened is they, they sued and they sued both for medical malpractice um, but also, they they sued for sort of a lack of informed consent, and uh, eventually this sort of fell under one of the concepts of previous lack of informed consent, which is battery. Uh, so we'll sort of stop here, and then we can go back to see what the court said. I don't know if Greg or Rick want to say anything. Well, the, the first thing you ought to say is, what a great name for an OB-GYN guy, Nick Yurder. Uh, he could act, or he could be on some sort of detective series, Nick Ureter. But there's there's really three issues as I'm sitting here listening to this. One of them is a contract issue. They made a contract, whether it's uh, verbal or written, that certain things would would happen. So there was non-performance under that contract, which she is expecting to have happen. So whether it's actually malpractice or not is really quite a different question. I mean, whether Dr. Hall had been sitting in the room or not doesn't mean the ureter wouldn't have been nicked. The real question here is, is there a non-performance under the contract? Greg, what do you think about that? 
this this case is going to follow a theme today, and it's one of the themes that we really wanted to get out into the public. Most all these cases end up being a suit for malpractice and a separate suit for failure to give informed consent. And almost and in the cases we're going to talk about, the doctors are all found okay with as far as malpractice and the consent. And, and we all need to know that when you're out there. It's not necessarily good enough to just do a good job. If you haven't communicated properly, you're still liable and you can get it. And that's one of the messages that that the article was sending. That's right. And so in the end, what happened, of course, was that Dr. Pugsley was was found not guilty for the malpractice aspect of it. However, he was found guilty of battery. And this was passed along to the Supreme Court of Virginia where, where the case was tried. And they felt that essentially the patient had withdrawn her consent for the operation by putting that stipulation in there saying, I want Dr. Hall here. As soon as Dr. Hall was not there and the operation was started, it was against her will. And so Dr. Pugsley was found guilty of battery at that point. Well, that's a, that, that brings up sort of an ancient uh, Latin phrase which they use in law, which is qui uh, tacit consented. Silence gives consent. So, for example, if you're watching yourself about to be sewn up, and there's lots of case law on this, Patrick V. O'Brien, which was the case where everybody on the ship was getting shots, he got in line with everybody else, took his uh, shot, his uh, virus, some virus was running through the area, took his shot, and proceeded to pass out and hit his head. So he says, well, I didn't give consent. Well, the court in O'Brien said, no, by standing there and having it happen, you knew what was going to happen. I mean, does this lady fall into this? Did she know that she knew that Dr. Hall wasn't in the room? So that did she say something at that moment in time like, no, I don't want you to start? I mean, this this would be one of these things with, that uh, does her silence give consent? Greg Moore. Well, and. In her case, well, in her case, see, she was put under anesthesia, and then she didn't have the ability to say, stop, I don't want this because he's not here. I mean, besides the dual issue of malpractice and consent, this case is important for the fact that uh, consent can be withdrawn at any time. You can even uh, medicate someone, and they're kind of gorked out, and if they say, I changed my mind, you've you got to honor that. In this case, actually, you know, that's a very good point about did she really tell anyone? And, of course, it comes down to most of the time the, through the doctors versus versus her. Um, Dr. Pugsley makes it sound like in the, in the court case that, you know, she sort of told me about it, but uh, she didn't really say anything that day. And then um, it turned Dr. Hall, actually, you know, they brought him in, and he said, you know, I talked to this lady. I've operated on her once, and I said I'd be around, but I never promised her I'd be in the OR at any point. Um, but she, you know, she very specifically says that even as the, as you see that, that great quote, uh, I felt the sodium pentothal hit my vein. And right before that, she's telling him, I do not want to be put to sleep until Dr. Hall is here. And there was a nurse anesthetist at the time who, I guess, agreed with her version as well of the events. And so that really was instrumental here. Um, as a separate, very interesting, fascinating point, does anyone want to guess what occupation Miss Prevet held? She was a nurse. That is one hundred percent correct. Yes, of course. Greg, have you been reading ahead? No, I have not been reading ahead. 
<laughs> yeah, that's actually not in the article. I found that in uh, when I was going through the court case. I thought it was fascinating. Even more fascinating is reading a court case, which sounds very much like an everyday occurrence in the emergency department, where they put it in very interesting scientific terms of this poor lady who's had this vague abdominal pain and occasional vaginal bleeding that's seen all these doctors who don't know what's going on with her. And finally, a Dr. Hall does an operation on her, which mostly is an, uh, an exam under anesthesia. And then she decides that he's the doctor that she wants in that operation, you know, uh, later. And so I think it's exceptionally important to remember that the squirrelier the patient, the more likely you're going to have a problem with them. Listen, and you better there's, make sure there's you no understanding of taste. Um, great, great. You know, the, there were people who used to ask for for Rick Bucata in the emergency department too. We've never figured that out, but <laughs> go ahead, guys, do yeah. it. You're, you're really right. You're really uh, correct, uh, Greg Henry. When you when you talk about basically the concept of implied consent, if you get in line, and you know uh, some e- some people will use presenting to an emergency department as sort of an implied consent, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the psychiatric patient. They come and, and the implication is somebody wanted you to be helped. And, um, you know, another example is if you pull out in a syringe and the person holds their arm out, they don't say you can do this. You don't ask of implied. And, and even in your private doctor's office, when, uh, when he says bend over, there's sort of an implied consent to what's going to happen next. Hey, guys, how do we deal with the idea that there is now a battery which is a kind of a criminal kind of thing and we get civil and criminal and i i guess the idea here is that although it may be battery the uh, district attorney is not particularly interested in this case that's that's true in the end it it sort of actually ties back to the original ideas of informed consent being tried as battery before they were moved over the cases were sort of moved over slowly over time into the area of negligence and tort instead of actual criminal battery. And uh, Greg Moore, I think you had part of the, the paper we had sort of talked about that. I don't know if you wanted to talk about any of the, there was sort of a yeah, couple uh, of Yeah, historically, yeah. historically consent was born as battery. And uh, basically, you know, you can't do this to me unless I allow you to do it or say you can do it. And then as the cases uh, developed, it was switched in the courts to sort of a malpractice negligence issue. And, um, you know, the classic case is Canterbury versus Spence. Every time you have a case on this in court, they're going to discuss Canterbury versus uh, Spence and mother of informed consent. And it is the case that said this is no longer battery uh, malpractice. You know, that's a uh, that comes up all the time when we look at, at these questions. By the way, for our listeners who don't understand all the legal terms, an assault is the threat of causing harm. The battery is the actual touching. And so you can have an assault without a battery. Actually, you can have a battery without an assault. Uh, We usually join them together, but uh, they really are separate concepts. This is the sort of unauthorized touching. And ever since uh, Canterbury, this... uh, you're, you're right, Greg. This, this is always brought up and always discussed. Greg, Henry, actually, I, I see quite a few uh, batteries without assault in the emergency department every Saturday night. And typically, they're intoxicated young males who uh, are sucker punched and swear they didn't do anything <laughs> or hear anything coming. So, Right. That's, that's exactly it. It's, it's like dealing with those young guys with rattlesnake bites. I've never seen a rattlesnake bite that didn't have something to do with young men between 17 and 20 
and 10 or 12 shots of whatever they were drinking. And then all of a sudden there's a rattlesnake bite. I can't explain it. So that uh, you, you talked about implied consent, but that, that Canterbury versus Spence, it was the holy grail of legal consent cases. And it kind of talked about everything you need to do in consent. And it also defined when you don't have to give consent. And there's there's four things uh, that they quoted that, you know, you don't have to bother to give consent if you don't want. And one of them is common knowledge. Uh, that case actually suggested that as a doctor, you don't have to warn someone before a surgery about an infection. Everybody knows you, you can get an infection when you cut your skin. And so it used that as an example to say if someone obviously knows something, you don't need to consent them on it. If we're in an emergency and there's no time to sit down or the patient's not in a position to discuss a matter, then you do not have to get informed consent according to the classic Canterbury. If the patient has prior patient knowledge, you know, if they've had appendicitis before and their appendix out and now you're going to take out another one, uh, you can say, hey, hey, they've had an appendectomy before. I don't really need to talk to them about this again. And I sometimes use that with sedations. Uh, people have had shoulder dislocations and it's put in again and again and again. And I said, have you had propofol? And they go, yeah. And I go, do you have any questions? No. And I don't go through the whole rigmarole with them. And Pete, you want to talk about the last exception? It's controversial. Oh, right. So therapeutic privilege this is the this is the one that that we probably shouldn't even bother with in the emergency department. That's sort of the idea that you know I'm going to tell them something it's going to scare them, so I just won't tell them. And I think there's there's most mostly problems with that uh, that never end well for the physician because then you have to sort of argue with twelve people who unfortunately are not your peers that day as to what the person would have known and would have been bothered by. So, all right, I want some honesty on this panel right now. All of us do things in the department. We can't go through the 24th complication down the list on every medication, on every procedure. You're going to talk about a few things, but there's going to be the also included crap that I can't, don't have time to tell you about that I, I don't know. At some point in time, you can't inform everybody of everything. Yes. So, so the, the early, early, the really early cases on battery and consent really created consent as kind of a, a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. The the early one said you need to tell someone everything they need to know to make a good decision, but you can't tell them anything that would make them make a bad decision, and they have to understand it all. And it's like, so where do you find that fine, happy place? And the word that's used in a lot of the early legal cases is understanding. So personally, I don't, I don't do the laundry list. I say, we discussed this. They seemed able to understand. And for you, Greg, then I say questions were answered. In other words, if there was anything else they wanted to know, I let them have that opportunity. They come back and say, you didn't tell me this. Right. My chart's going to say questions were answered. Everything they wanted to ask was answered. So well, that's kind of how I avoid the 50, 50 item. I'm sure you guys who have, who have looked like I have at all these cases agree that informed consent is almost never the issue in emergency medicine. It's informed refusal. I mean, informed consent is about elective procedures pretty much. Informed refusals is what we do. When we say, you know what, you need a CT scan – your, your mentation is going down. We want to send you over. 
It's that refusal that, that gets us in trouble. I don't think consent is as big an issue in the ER as informed refusal. Although, Greg, uh, you've been reading these papers about the treatment of appendicitis with uh, IV antibiotics for a few days, and the fact is that probably 85% who, of people who do that will be uh, okay. And so the issue, I think, is... Yeah, but 15% won't, Rick. <laughs> and, well, I think and, that, you know, the, uh, the, in the past, a 10% miss rate on uh, doing an appendectomy was considered acceptable. So I think this issue about, well, are there other options, doctor, that I can potentially choose from, that does relate to informed consent. And now, I do think that that would be an example. It's, it's probably not a great example because I think the surgical community would not necessarily be supporting the use of antibiotics. But I can tell you, I see more and more papers now talking about the use of antibiotics viewing it as right-sided diverticulitis you know it's yeah, the same yeah. no, kind of thing I, i've you heard know? that i've heard that argument but the the other side of that coin is when they look at those people who were treated with the antibiotics half of them in the next two years are going to have their appendix out or they have to go in later for some complication of the abscess you know with with a procedure which is like one in a hundred thousand deaths which an appendix is, why wouldn't you want to have that out? I mean, I suppose you can carry on that conversation with the patient, but don't they eventually say, doctor, what, would you, what is your best opinion here? Well, you know, I think that that is probably true, and, I, and it may be not a great example, but I think it is consistent with the idea that you have to present where there are, you have to present the alternatives to the suggested treatment and the risks and benefits of the alternatives and the risks and benefits of doing nothing. And I think that that is, I think, viewed as the classical presentation of informed consent. Well, I'm sure our uh, we- visitors are going to go come to the TPA question because that's a real question where when you carry on that discussion, you're talking big time. You, you know, do you, do you want to live? Or do you want to bleed into your head? Uh, Do you want to be able to move your arm? Those are difficult (laughs) informed consent questions. Right. And that sort of... Along the the API uh, question, uh, Pete, we should talk about the the bub versus brusky. Yeah. Because that's a similar thing. You're talking about about a disposition and a a treatment course. You want to talk about that one? Yeah, I think that launches us right into the next section pretty well. Although I have to say I... uh, to Greg Henry that I've noticed an interesting pattern with appendicitis when I was uh, I would moonlight in the community uh, not always you know doing academics and I noticed that between the hours of about 11 p.m. until about 6 a.m. is when antibiotics for appendicitis seem to be in vogue and then operations immediately <laughs> seem to pick up again around 6 a.m. until about uh, dinner time or so yeah I don't know well, if that's been your experience too well, that's the same phenomena that between midnight and 8 a.m., I'm the best plastic surgeon in America. <laughs> come, come 8 or 9, you know, I can't, I can't even, you know, tie my shoes after 9 o'clock in the morning. But come midnight, you know, I can, I can handle all those ducks and nerves that I can't even name anymore. That's right. <laughs> so that, that launches us into our uh, sort of a really interesting case, Bub versus Brusky. And the facts of the case um, sort of start off with Mr. Bub going to the emergency department and saying, you know, he has some dysphagia and also uh, has syncope. 
And by the time he gets to the emergency department, most of his symptoms have resolved, and he's seen by Dr. Brusky, who's the emergency physician. He runs some blood tests, he does a CAT scan, and he makes a diagnosis of a transient ischemic attack as the patient's symptoms have all resolved. At that point, he calls a neurologist, Dr. I believe it's called, it's Gu, G-U, Dr. Ju, who's Gu, who says that, uh, you know what, the patient can follow up with me as an outpatient. And so the uh, patient is told, you got to call his office and get an appointment. And he calls the office and gets an appointment for 12 days later. And I'm sure everyone knows what happens. Two days later, he suffers a massive stroke and is completely paralyzed on one side. And so the initial court case actually is is tried sort of on, on two fronts here. And so there is a suit brought against both the physicians, both um, Dr. Brusky and also Dr. Uh, Gu, about the uh, malpractice, the issue of malpractice. But then also they sue uh, based on the fact that they had a lack of informed consent about getting a Doppler or the, op- the pop- uh, opportunity to get a Doppler or to be admitted for a TIA. And so not only are they saying, hey, you didn't do, a, do what was right scientifically, you also didn't sort of offer me the option and tell me about that option that I had to be admitted and get a Doppler study. And so um, I can, I'll stop here and ask you guys what you think might happen because this, this winds through several different le- levels of court. So, so question one is, is it malpractice to see a patient with a TIA, get a CAT scan lab work, call a neurologist, have a, dis- have a discussion with a neurologist, neurologist take the patient, say I'll do them in follow-up. W- would you consider that you know, below the standard of care? Rick, you want to start? Well, it's a little tough because my recollection is that the Heart Association has said all the TIA should be admitted. However, when you ask, well, what are you going to do during that admission, it's going to be, well, we're going to give you some uh, aspirin, and we're going to do this carotid study, and we're going to do a look at your heart uh, with an ultrasound to see if you've got anything weird going on there. And the fact is, is that many hospitals could get this done during the day within a couple of hours, and the question is, well, then what? Why would I be coming into the hospital? The, one of the perverted reasons listed in the Heart Association's defense of admission is that you'll be able to get TPA immediately, given the fact that they're big believers in this. This is maybe one of the reasons not to be admitted to the hospital. <laughs> but, but yeah. and, and then you ask, well, how long do I need to stay in the hospital to be given this drug if I need it? And obviously, that's kind of a, a vague question, but most of these strokes do occur within a short time after the presentation. And I think, honestly, the, many of them are not going to be avoidable, to tell you the truth. But, so you go through the process, but that going through the process doesn't by any means guarantee that you're going to get a good outcome. Well, the, the other thing is, what did they say to the patient? Did they start the patient on the only thing that we know probably works to cut this down, which is aspirin? Did they arrange to make sure that there's going to be a carotid study and some study of the heart, an echo of the heart? Because when you think about it, what can we actually fix? When we bring you in the hospital, it's A, number one, are you in rhythm? Number two, do you have a valve that's funky? Number three is a 90% obstruction in the neck. After that, 
everything drops down on the list pretty much. I mean, you put them on an aspirin, you go for the best. Rick was referring to Johnston's study, which was done in Northern California about five or six years ago, which looked at if you came in with a, uh, with a TIA, what happened to you? And Johnston said, yeah, 5% of them will in the next two days uh, stroke out. And there's another 4 or 5%, that, that 9 or 10% number keeps coming up, who will eventually, after three months, 90 days, will have another vascular event. I, I think those numbers are about right. Isn't that correct, Rick? Well, I don't, I don't recall. I think that basically Kaiser was the first one to start looking at what are the consequences and, the, and what are the time frames that these events occur. But their data has been affirmed by others, which makes us all very, very nervous about TIAs. And it's even more interesting when, the, when you get into these more sophisticated tests, not CAT scan. CAT scan is bleed, no bleed. But what if you get into some of these diffusion-weighted MRIs and they basically see that many times these TIAs are, in fact, mini-strokes. And there is clearly some area of the brain which has been compromised where you can see it on an image which suggests that that is going to uh, recur unless it was some kind of embolic phenomenon. So it's like, is a TIA really a mini stroke? And if it is, should we take it more seriously? Although, honestly, Greg, just as you said, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? I, I, I just read another paper that's looking to find a treatment in the posterior fossa. And, of course, there's no good literature out there where they've actually done this right. It's all selective crap where somebody says, I stuck a catheter up there and sucked a clot out, and I think they're better. Why did they do that? Because there's a billing code for it now, but there's no science. It's, it's interesting that our billing codes are ahead of our science on this question. Yeah. So when I was at Kaiser uh, for five years, you know, there was a protocol. I think that's what you're mentioning, Rick. There was a protocol where, you know, these people would go to a TIA clinic like the next day and get all their risks taken care of and scheduled for their urgent tests. And it was all supposed to happen within 72 hours. And I, I think that's the data that got published as being a reasonable approach. But after the discussion, I mean, I just, I just felt like he did a CAT scan. The patient had a normal exam. The neurologist came down. They decided together that this was outpatient. The neurologist assumed care for him and that that was not unreasonable care. And, and the court felt like it was reasonable too. And they said, hey, there's no malpractice here. But Pete, what did they? Yeah, so they rejected they go the, on the other they, issue. Yeah, the jury, the jury finds in favor of both doctors for malpractice saying that they, they performed reasonably in that area. However, what happens is the, the, lower, the lower court sort of doesn't really even instruct the jury on the issue of informed consent. They reject it flat out saying, no, you can't, you can't deal with admission and a Doppler as an area of informed consent. So they throw it out. Um, but of course, it's appealed and it goes to the appeal court. And <clears throat> it turns out that w what actually the appeal court says, they drop drop the neurologist off because they say he really didn't have any duty to inform the patient about admission. Um, Greg, I think in, in this case, actually, the neurologist never came into the hospital. It was just a phone call to the neurologist. And so yeah, the, the yeah, that's uh, the usual situation. Yeah. I mean, whenever neurologists say, well, we treat these all the time. No, they don't. They tell us to treat them all the time, but they don't actually do it. Uh, by the way, just a comment back to the Heart Association supporting something. 
Heart Association's been wrong a lot of times. They're the ones that told us that epinephrine worked. They thought the sodium bicarb was good. They thought all they thought amiodarone was going to uh, solve everything, treat everything, including normal sinus rhythm. You know, we have a lot of things come out of the Heart Association, which, as far as I'm concerned, are not necessarily defended by the literature. I believe they actually, going back to your point before, have a, a policy on rattlesnake bites, if I'm correct. Uh, <laughs> it's not particularly well researched. Um, anyway, so in this current case, uh, they basically drop off uh, the neurologist, but they say that um, you know, th- this is reasonable to consider, um, you know, an informed consent case against Dr. Brusky. And they sort of make mention of the fact that a Doppler, a Doppler could have been done and also that, um, that, that this uh, um, admission could possibly have happened. What Dr. Brusky's side sort of argues in the appellate court is, look, I, I can't get a Doppler and I don't have admitting privileges. So neither of those were viable options for me. And what you're really focusing on here is the expediency of the workup rather than any kind of informed consent. So why don't you just sort of throw it out? And the appellate court says, yeah, it sounds like a good argument. And they say again, you know, okay, there's nothing there to worry about for informed consent. So that, that's sort of the argument set there. And, of course, it gets appealed again. And the Supreme Court of Wisconsin at that point says, actually, we disagree. You know, it seems like Doppler and admission are viable treatment options that should have been discussed with the patient. Um, but, you know, definitely this is something the patient needs to be informed of. And so they remand it back to the circuit court and say you got to let a jury decide whether those actually are viable treatment options. But in our opinion, you can't just sort of flat out summarily dismiss this so wait a second now wait a second here for a did this patient have a <laughs> surgically correctable disease that would have been picked up by a by a doc did they have a heart valve locus of infection did they have did they have an abnormal rhythm did they had something that is going to be treated with a doppler well, it turns out that, of course, there was a large stenotic lesion that could have undergone endarterectomy. Now, that's sort of part of the argument is, you know, you get a Doppler that shows an occlusion. Do you have an endarterectomy that night uh, or two days later? But still, the court sort of said, you know, this is an, an option, a treatment option and a modality that the patient should have been offered. And, you know, the general sense from the court is really more that a jury gets to decide whether that that's a, a viable option for this particular case. But in general, you can't just say, no, this is not an issue of informed consent. They sort of put this new area in there that, look, a treatment option and admission are both things you need to discuss with a patient and sort of fall under the, the area of informed consent that can be uh, sort of... Um, you know, a very prime area for a lot of court cases. I don't think that the uh, we've mentioned the words yet, but this is kind of sliding into the uh, concept of uh, uh-oh, shared decision making. Oh, ah! yeah. <laughs> oh um, I, I thought I thought this this case this case to me was practice changing and huge and huge, and it follows a pattern of recent cases where. You might give good care, but if you didn't talk to people, you're you're very liable. And so how do I use this? I mean, I don't know about your guys' institutions, but we're starting to see PEs discharged. Yes. Um, you know, you have an older person with pneumonia. They look pretty good. Uh, most people would admit a PE. 
um, but there's literature to support discharging it. Most people would admit an elderly pneumonia, but some of them look good and they'd rather watch their own TV at home. So when I get in these sort of, well, you could skin this cat different ways situations, I go in and talk with the patient now. And I say, you know, there's there's evidence to support you going home on blood thinners if you want. Most people would bring you in. How do you feel about this? Let them say, I want to go home, and then and then I document. Hey, I discussed outpatient versus inpatient. The patient seemed to understand. I answered all their questions, and they wanted to go home. And I'll do that with the, an 80-year-old pneumonia if they look good and say, hey, you know, most people would bring you in, but you look pretty good, and you seem like you're okay, and you, your husband drives, and you could get back, and, you know, the food here is not that good. How do you feel about this? And a lot of them will say, I want to go home. I'll take the pills. I'll go home and I'll come back. Yeah. And uh, same thing. Then you document. We discussed inpatient versus outpatient. She, she got it. Uh, she understood. She, you know, I answered all her questions and she wanted to go home kind of thing. Greg, you realize we're 15 years behind in the public realizing that inpatient bad, outpatient good. After all, you know, where are you going to get your Ebola? Most likely in a hospital, as we as we've seen, where are you going to get fall out of bed, break your hip, all these other things? I I think this discussion with the patient about treatment is it's important that you know you can sleep as well at home, probably better. The mattress isn't wrapped in plastic. They don't take your rectal temperature every four hours. There's a lot of reasons not to come in hospitals, but you think that needs to be documented on the chart. Well, usually if I take the time to do it, I go ahead and, and note it down. And when I when I do this is when I'm in, you know, these kind of tricky gray areas. It could go either way. We've all yeah. seen it go this way and all seen it go that way. That's when I take the time to to have the discussion. You know, you can you can do it with CT scans. I, I did it a week or two ago with a CT scan for appendicitis. It's like I, I don't really think you have this, but we can find out for sure, but you might have it and how do you feel? And they said, Well, I'll just go home and see how it goes and then I then I document. Hey, we talked about it. They wanted to go home, and I think it's helpful to have that on the chart. Yeah, although, I think it is too. Although, don't most patients want to go home? I mean, uh, that in itself kind of thing may may. It's really the issue of, of informed consent because I think there's a, pre, a certain prejudice. Yeah, I don't want to come into the hospital, so they're trying to do something that if they can avoid it. So their ability to really understand, well. Here's where you stand on the pneumonia severity index kind of thing. Your odds of living are X or Y. I don't think we 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 are. It's ever intended that we get down to that level. But the fact is that these people are laymen, and their ability to really truly make an informed decision in in many cases, I think, is tough. Not that it shouldn't be done, but I think that they can always come back and say. Well, I'm I'm not a doctor, you know. I I, I want, yeah, my, I had to take care of my cat kind of thing. Yeah, I wanted to go home. I didn't realize if that that this could happen. So you, you can understand a layman, layman making a fairly good case trying to undo your version of informed consent. You know, yeah, uh, I, I, uh, I like that's that. that's a that's a definite definite risk. And uh, Rick, you know, Rick, when I'm in it, you know, we're we're crusty now, and uh, we're not afraid to say say what we feel and. 
you know, that older person that's got a pulse of 120 and an oximetry of 85, I don't go in and have that discussion. Got you. I, don't, right. I don't really care if they want to go home. <laughs> but, you, you know, we all have those ones where they're sort of on the fence. And, and then I will use a lot of lay language. It's like the lady with the appendicitis. I say, we can get this CAT scan or not. You still might have it. And if you went home and had it, I wouldn't want you to think that stupid doctor didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. I want you to say, well, we talked about it. And uh, I wanted to give it a try. You know, I, I kind of um, incorporate them into it and um, try to get them on my side. But I, I completely agree with you, Rick, that, uh, you know, someone could go out and then make the case that's, that he didn't do it good enough or I didn't realize that and, or it seemed like he wanted me to go home. So I did those kind of things. I think shared decision making has to do with setting goals that you want to accomplish But to think that you need shared decision-making as to whether you're going to get an arteriogram, whether you're going to do this or that, I think we've taken this way too far. I don't want to sound like a uh, crusty old doc, but I am a crusty old doc. Quite frankly, I think that there are certain things you cannot bring the patient into and expect them to have any input into the discussion. The goals, yeah. And, And what are the potential problems? Sure. But to, to, but to put that kind of onus on them, on grandma, who's 92, who's just come in from the nursing home, I don't think that that's really what we want to accomplish here. I just don't. Yeah, you know, I, I think that no, yeah, I, with Greg I Moore, we, I find oh. the same thing is that it's mostly these, these sort of gray situations or I think probably more concerning to me sometimes is the areas where I, I don't have control. You know, I won't say what institution that I've worked at where, I mean, I've had the experience of having to discharge a patient because absolutely no service would take them. And, you know, in my mind, it was a moderate risk, you know, patient that based on the, my best, you know, my best sort of feeling should have been admitted for chest pain. And the cardiologist said, no, our observation unit was full. The medicine doctor said, we don't want him if cardiology doesn't want him. Cardiology said no again. And I had to go into the room to tell the patient, I'm really sorry, but no one wants to keep you here. And I'm going to keep you here for a few more hours and do some more blood tests, but I can't get you a stress test any faster. And and so I, I've had this situation before where I go into a room, you know, a vague neurologic complaint in a young person that I know a neurologist doesn't believe is a TIA, but theoretically could be one. You know, they're worried about specificity. I'm worried about sensitivity. And so I go in there and I say to them, hey, look, here are the options available to you, but guess what? They're not available to you if I can't do them and I can't get the neurologist to admit you, then uh, we'll try this together. But we might end up with you going home. And, and some people actually write up and say, hey, guess what? I don't even care. I'll take whatever risk it is. I'll go home. You don't need to talk to the neurologist. Other ones, you know, the neurologist comes and sees them and suddenly the neurologist is like, wow, this patient really wants to come in. And, and now they, <laughs> they've had a prep for me that someone might not want to deny them the, uh, the, the thing that I think is maybe best for them. Uh, so I, I've had that. Well, well I'm a, I'm, I'm a decades-long emergency medicine abstract subscriber and there's a lot of literature out there uh, you guys can agree with me if if it's right uh, that will say patients are willing to take more risks than uh, we paternalistically will often give. Oh, absolutely, yeah, no question. And they're also willing to take more risk risk with their kids. <clears throat> yes, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> which I can understand. Uh, yeah. So uh, when it comes to lumbar punctures and things like that. Mm-hmm. So let's let's yeah. maybe jump to two more quick cases that are also sort of in the same vein. Um, 
And, uh, and the one is we, we sort of reference it in the paper but don't discuss it. So uh, we'll go through some of the details real quick here. It's uh, John Ray versus Wisconsin. And so John Ray is a, a guy that basically gets some facial paralysis at work. And he goes to the emergency department. He also has some tingling in his legs, a little bit of weakness. And the doctor, Dr. Bullis, uh, listens to his carotid with a stethoscope and sort of examines him and decides, well, um, you know, you're not having a stroke. You have Bell's palsy. Uh, why don't you go ahead and go home? And the primary care doctor sees him a couple of days later and diagnoses him with Bell's palsy that's getting better. And then, of course, a couple of days later, he develops a full-blown stroke and, again, takes out one side of his whole of his body and so they allege that besides sort of malpractice because after all can you really diagnose a carotid uh, narrowing with a stethoscope besides suing from uh, for about malpractice they also sue sort of again on this idea of informed consent and once again it's the doppler and uh, basically that uh, you had a test you could have done that would have diagnosed the 90 percent occlusion that i had at this time and what's interesting here is that the physician defendant actually argue that at some point we have to make a final diagnosis. And we made the final diagnosis that was most likely at the time. And all the other stuff that was on the differential shouldn't count when we talk about options for the patient. And so you can't really sue me for not telling you about an option for a diagnosis that I didn't consider the most likely. And you know, the jury basically finds the, the doctor not guilty for malpractice, but they do find him negligent for failing to provide informed consent. And of course, it sort of goes through again, this sort of several levels of appellate courts and the Supreme Court. And what's interesting is when it gets to the Supreme Court level, essentially, uh, the lawyers for the doctor are saying, look, we, we have to have, they call it a bright line rule where there has to be some place where we stop telling people about all the options available for them once we've sort of clinically crossed some of these things off the differential. And by the way, if, if they're not negligent for malpractice, how the heck could they be negligent for failing to provide informed consent on something that was in the differential but not the final diagnosis? Um, so any ideas where the, well, you can talk about the case first, and then I'll ask you what you think the Supreme Court of Wisconsin said. I don't know. They got a lot of pinheads in Wisconsin. I'm sure they sided with the patient in this case and uh, said that they should have informed him at a greater level. Is that right, Pete? Well, so they remanded it back to the circuit court and they essentially <laughs> said, look, you can let a jury decide that, but we're not going to draw a line in the sand because in the end, if you just pick one final diagnosis, um, how do we know that all the stuff along the way was, was adequately worked up? And maybe the patient you know, does need to be a part of that process as well. So they sort of let the circuit courts decide. But the point was... Um, they refused to take a stand where they said, look, you come up with a final diagnosis, and then that's the only thing you really have to talk to me about, uh, what you think is the final diagnosis. Well, what's scary, though, is uh, so the, fir the first case in this area was a disposition. You know, you should have talked to someone about a disposition. Right. And then now we got a case in the <clears throat> Supreme Court saying you should have talked to this patient about some tests that could have been ordered. And, in, and to me, it's getting – you know, I'm just taking this as food for thought. And like I say, when there's different ways to skin that cat, I know of these cases. I think this one ended up being a $2 million payout with no malpractice being ruled, just the consent issue. You know, that's so an interesting question. 
who who pays the two million dollars? Because if your malpractice policy covers malpractice, this isn't classic malpractice. Are they going to have to cover this one? Well, that's a great question, and that is where when we go back to the beginning at Canterbury versus Spence, back then your malpractice wouldn't have paid it because it's battery. But right now, now. Consent is a separate form of malpractice of negligence. It's a separate subset besides the medical negligence. So it, w- it, it was covered under the insurance. The insurance, they were big defendants in this whole process. Too. I'm, I'm sure they were. So this is scary business. Every one of these uh, cases, the doctors were not uh, found guilty of malpractice. But here's one where there was a huge settlement for something that uh, was st- strictly related to consent, which is... To be candid, I've never heard of this, and you're starting to scare me now. <laughs> well, well, we saw some of these, and we scared ourselves. And then our response was, "Let's we need to share this with people. Uh, we need to share this with people and kind of raise awareness. That was sort of our, our kind of reaction to all this as well. I think it's working. I'm getting yeah, scared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd also have to add, gentlemen, you know, I'm a – I'm a neophyte to this area, and so Greg Moore has sort of been my my uh, window into the legal world. And you know, for me, I've always wanted same thing with the diagnostic test. I want a, a yes, no, or a uh, an up, down, or a hey, I do this, and no matter what, a hundred percent of the time, I will be completely and totally okay. And the same thing with lawsuits. You know, I, I feel like um, what. I've learned by going through all this is mostly that we're just decreasing post-test probability of a lawsuit, however, or losing a lawsuit too. However, um, you know, along the way, there's no surefire way. You just sort of do your best and have to hope that the discussion you have with the patient, uh, you know, gets you out of some of this and then your, your documentation gets you out of the rest. And then hopefully I do well on a stand one day. Well, there's a, there are a couple other little kind of things that we found in our review of the topic that come up and then uh, is it, it, it so there were two questions is like do you have to tell someone how good you are at something I mean do you have to say we're going to do a lumbar puncture and here's the student and it's their first time ever experience matter with informed consent and then the other one was they've signed the consent form and are you scot-free then? Now that they've signed that form, do you not worry about anything anymore as far as consent? And uh, I don't know, you got some cases on that, right, Pete? I do, yeah. So the first one in that issue of the physician's sort of competence or experience, um, there was a case, Johnson versus Kokomore, and essentially this was a case with a neurosurgeon who told a lady she needed her cerebral aneurysm clipped and that he would do it and that he had a success rate that was normal for everyone around the area and also that you know only about 2% complication rate and of course he goes in and clips it and she becomes quadriplegic so she sues and the suit is is actually that he overstated his experience and so it, it falls under this idea of informed consent he didn't inform her that his experience is actually less than what was you know sort of standard for the area? He said he had done it dozens of times, when in reality he had only done it a handful of times. This was a posterior fossa procedure. He said the risk was two percent. When expert testimony eventually found out, it was probably about eleven percent. And to make it even better, they lived about you know ninety minutes away from the Mayo Clinic, where uh, there were tons of doctors who had done this more often. <laughs> and so, 
So the the physician was uh, again it was sued not not on the idea of malpractice because this was a known complication of the procedure, but uh, on the fact that the patient wasn't informed that there were viable options sort of outside of this one physician and that he didn't have the same experience as everyone else. Well, by by the same token, wouldn't you think that a patient understands that they have certain other options? Just because you live next to the Mayo Clinic doesn't mean you get your care there. There are three things in the world badly overrated, home cooking, home sex, and the Mayo Clinic. And if you don't <laughs> understand that, you're crazy. Uh, they, what happens is they have complications like everybody else. If he gave that patient uh, too much puffery, I guess, too much I can do it sort of thing. But, you know, a neurosurgeon who's who's board certified, that sort of thing, this is kind of what they do. I mean, to what degree does he have to say, I'm excellent? Uh, I mean, we don't do that in the rest of our lives with everything else we do. Uh, why would this guy be picked out to have to state those sort of things? Although, Greg, wouldn't you be, frankly, angry if this was a family member who basically was sold a, a, a bill of goods here with regards to the experience and competence of this doctor, which was substantially overstated. And this that didn't sound like it was some kind of urgent, I got to do it right this minute kind of thing. <laughs> they could have driven 90 miles on a Uber taxi and uh, gotten there and have that, had, this, had this done. So <laughs> I, think that, I think the sniff test is if you think that you can get angry over something because you think you were misled, I think that they're t these guys are talking about a whole new realm of of a way to lose money without technically screwing up. Yes, well, I, I understand the discussion, but let, let, let's look at it in a lot of different ways here. Uh, where do we take this? I mean, in the emergency department, you may only put in uh, four chest tubes a year. Does that mean you shouldn't be doing it? Uh, you know, there's lots of questions that come up with this. Now, do we have to have a certificate at the door? This case is different because it's an elective procedure, and I understand that. But, uh, I, you know, I just want to know where the, where the limits are. What do we have to say about ourselves? That, that's a difficult question. And, but, you know, it's interesting. So, uh, so I, I, oh, sorry, Greg. The court actually yeah, I, went in this and said that, you know, hey, by the way, the jury can decide sort of whether you really overstated this or not. But uh, the Supreme, once it got to the Supreme Court and sort of referred back, they mentioned specifically, you know, quoting exact percentages of risk isn't really necessary uh, or expected. You just can't overstate in general your competence at a procedure. And so that was sort of one of the things they, they put in their discussion of this when they go back to the jury. So I think that's a little ho more hopeful. The guy didn't have to say I'm a 2% versus 11% or whatever. But, uh, you know, when you go through and read this, uh, this guy sort of passes the typical neurosurgeon test, as you said, where it seemed like he uh, was doing a procedure that he might not have done very frequently, but other guys in the area did sort of like an orthopedic surgeon so, who's a knee guy who, who uh, does your shoulder because he needs it. Yeah, I understand. So, so the, good news, the, good news, the good news out of this case is they clearly said, Matt, you don't have to go down a list of percentages of this. There's a 2%. This is going to happen. There's a 1%. You don't have to be that precise. But this guy was specifically asked by the patient, um, are you experienced in this? How many times have you done it? And he said, I've done it dozens of times. 
And uh, I think they see, seized on that. The, the thing I struggle with is I work in a teaching center, you know, <laughs> which right. by definition is people that haven't done much that are going to be doing stuff. And um, what would be my defense, you know? Uh, and, and Greg Henry, I think like one of them would go back to that implied cement, I mean implied consent where you hold out your arm for the blood test. You know, when somebody walks into University Teaching Hospital, the sign says right there, we're teaching stuff here. And if you're walking in the door, you kind of understand that uh, not everyone is going to be the most experienced senior person. That that would be kind of the defense I would throw out there if I got nabbed in one of these experience cases. You know, and I generally tell them about my res, like, you know, this is one of the residents or students, and I'm going to be right here with them, and, and they have some experience with this, and I have more experience with this, and that's my general not quoting percentages, meaning they have stuck a plastic model with a needle once for a uh, lumbar puncture, but you're the first flesh model. Um, but I, you know, I sort of summon some and, and more sort of the words that I use. And then if they ask questions, and you know, I, I guess I found mostly that people that are terrified of students almost invariably want to know exactly how many or will just flat out tell you, I don't want the student. I'd rather have you as the real doctor, in which case I've actually pointed out once or twice. Actually, the senior resident has done more of these than I have in the last, you know, <laughs> two months. So if you still like believe me, people, believe me, you don't want the attending doing this. <laughs> Yeah, well, as a as a junior medical student uh, out at Wayne County General Hospital, which is Detroit's county hospital, which the University of Michigan ran at that time, as a junior, I was putting in my first chest tube, and one of the uh, thoracic residents was with me, watching me. And the patient looked up at me and said, you're not an intern, are you? And I said, no, sir, I'm not. <laughs> and, and and I proceeded with with uh, putting the chest tube in. I did not technically lie to him. I was not an intern. I was a third year medical student, and uh, fortunately, I didn't drop his lung at the same time. That's correct. Actually, one of my residents told me his standard line when someone asks him is, "You wouldn't believe how many of these I've done." which often is zero, um, and he, he feels that they won't believe him if he tells them, so he does not feel that's a lie either. Right, exactly. Uh, it's time for the good stuff, the really good stuff, guys. Do you have any, uh, any more little pearls from the cases that you want to get out? Yeah, I think that we have one more case that probably goes into how we document it. Yeah, absolutely, how we will document informed consent then. So this sort of final case we'll talk about real quick is Havens versus Hoffman. And in this case, Havens, Ms. Havens had an incisional hernia and also a, uh, needed a lung biopsy, and they decided to do it at the same time. And, and Dr. Hoffman goes in and breaks a rib, tears some cartilage, and causes chronic pain. And so, please, tell, so, please tell me that that was Jerry Hoffman. Yeah. Oh, God, please tell me it was Jerry Hoffman. <laughs> it was Hoffman. not, sadly. I, I checked three times just to make okay. sure. Perfect. Uh, but I didn't do any any lineage though, so it possibly it's like a cousin or something. Um, but anyway, he uh, essentially what happens is Havens first sues for negligence, and there he's given Dr. Hoffman right away is given summary judgment that he's clearly not negligent that this sort of happens. But then Havens amends the case and says, well, you know, actually he didn't provide me with informed consent that another procedure could have been done. Or he and he also really didn't tell me about the risks of this procedure, and so Dr. Hoffman quite quite frankly says, "Hey, look, it's on the consent form. 
you know, I have this standard consent form and I gave it to the patient. And in the article, we have the whole, you know, consent listed there that, that he gives. But it's basically a, a blurb that says, yeah, I understand that there's some other ways to do this and, and that I've gotten an explanation and I understand all the risks. And then he also puts in his chart, procedures, findings, indications, risks, benefits, and possible complications explained to patient satisfaction. Patient gives her informed consent for both procedures scheduled on July 20 or June, January 20th, 1992. And so the, the, the movement from the physician side is, look, we have this form. You have to just summarily dismiss this proceeding. And initially, the, the lower court sort of uh, refuses. And again, it sort of gets bounced all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court comes back and says, you know what, guess what? This is Wyoming, by the way. Uh, the Supreme Court says that it's true that consent is found in the form, but it does not insist in de- demonstrating the specific nature of the advice given that would lead to an informed consent. And so they remand it back again to the lower courts and say, you know, this form doesn't prove informed consent. You have to testify as to what was said, what was done, and whether this patient really understood what was going on. And that's up for a jury to decide. Um, So they wouldn't summarily dismiss it. And I think that, again, Greg Moore and my take-home point on this one really was and I think everyone's caught up to this, is that the form itself is, is almost meaningless. At this, I mean, you have to have it signed, you have to do it, but in the end, it's really your discussion with the patient that matters. The form is yeah, not, not the panacea. process. Correct. It's not the process. Right, right. right. It's not a panacea. But um, again, in the paper, like we use the Washington law, and, and, you, and you know what? Uh, most states are going to have laws regarding consent forms and informed consent, and Washington says... As a state, we assume a signed consent form is consent. And if you, the patient, are going to sue, then you got to prove that you did not get consent. And that's powerful. That puts the burden of proof on the other side. Instead of having to defend yourself and say, I did it, I did it, I did it, they have to prove that you didn't do it. Hmm. And a lot, of states, a lot of states will do that. They'll shift the burden to the, to the other side, and that's a, that's a big burden to overcome with this signed form in front of you. You know, when I uh, many many years ago, I guess I was an intern or something. They took my appendix out, and the full professor sat there with me and drew on the back of the form and said, "This could happen. This could happen. This could happen." He says, "I know you know all that shit. Sign it." I said, "Yeah, that you know, you're right. That's what you ought to do." And even though I was another doc, he went through. The things that happen, all the problems, and to this day, I thought he's a role model for the rest of us. I mean, he took a doctor and went through all the complications. I like that. Uh, yeah, that's great. And so, when we talked about what would you do, I mean, that's sort of the question. Then, how do you document what you've done and what you've said? And I think that essentially, we, we sort of put a little blurb in there. But I know. My practice uh, sort of evolved from this, which um, I think Greg actually has the best. Greg Moore, you have the best sort of statement that you put in your chart. What, what was that that you write? I usually – well, because again, you, you take all these legal cases and the key word that keeps coming up is understand. They understood. They had all they needed but not too much. And uh, so I will just put a statement to the fact that uh, you know we discussed appendectomy. The patient seemed competent. Uh, They seemed to understand. I answered their questions. I answered their questions. 
and they chose this. That's kind of the thing. And it has a lot of legal power as far as early concepts, legal concepts of understanding enough but not too much, uh, the opportunity to ask anything that you wanted to know, and then your final decision. Well, Greg, you, you just answered the first of our emails from Tim O'Connor, who uh, basically is a newbie. He started in May, and so far he likes it. But, you know, don't jump the gun, Tim. It gets worse. Yeah, you're uh, right. It really does. Yeah. But, and, and, and obviously he said this is a question for the experts, which clearly means that he really is a new, new guy. Yeah. <laughs> but he specifically was asking in the setting of shared decision-making, he wants our two cents about what should be put in in a note, and 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 Greg Moore, you just you just answered that. Yeah, uh, um, beautiful. And I beautifully think that, done. I'm I'm an I'm a lazy guy with charting. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I look for reasons not to list the 25 things and the this and that and this and that. I kind of distill it, and hopefully this like episode and the legal cases make it clear that there's a few key things that you can put in 10 to 15 words that are very powerfully protective. Is there any other points that uh, we should make in summarizing this issue? Before well, we I, can add, I can add one thing about a case that we were going to discuss, but well, we know, really Greg, don't have we, time to. We, we but, can pick it up next month if you want. But if well, it's, that, if it's maybe, we should finish, maybe we should finish some of these concepts next month because it's going to be exactly on what was written in the chart, hmm. who ignored who, it had to do with a heart attack where someone went home before the last enzyme came back. Oh. And this is, this is the, the hospitals claiming elopement, the patient saying he was told to leave, that there was nothing wrong with him, and there's nothing written on that chart. What I would pass out to our, to our friends and colleagues listening is trust nobody on that issue. When they're gone and you can't get a hold of them, that ought to look like your final exam in medicine because it isn't going to end well. It can't end well. <laughs> Pete, you got any uh, last words of wisdom? You know, I, I think that just sort of summarize and bring it all together, make the patient like you. I mean, I, you know, that's the, the first step in, in all these is get the patient to like <laughs> you, even the most awful, horrible patient. They like you. Um, you notice Dr. Hall was never sued by the uh, crazy nurse for anything, even though he wasn't there, um, even though he probably promised to be there. So get the patient to like you, and I think that, that goes a long way. And then just to be careful that you, you sort of have to have a general sense that we don't practice in a vacuum, and you have to sort of let people know of what's going to happen, some of the options available to them, especially in some of these sort of gray areas where you might not have an outcome for a couple of days and you know, no one wants to hospitalize them. I think those are particularly dangerous areas. And then also, of course, that even though you do all that stuff, it's really important to put a, a blurb in your chart that the you know, the patient seems to have capacity or competence, whatever you want to say, and that the patient uh, has had their chance to have their questions answered and that you explained everything and hope that you can do a really good job uh, on deposition if you need to. And, and I, I state that on the chart. I said, it seemed like they got it to me. I, I make it very common kind of language. You know, I talk to them about it, and boy, they sure seem like they got it. Because hey. when you go in, if you do talk to a jury, it's going to be regular people. And, you know, you, you wanna, if you want to use flowery, legalistic terms there, I, I tend to stay away. I, I t stay away from uh, that, you know, capacity, competence a lot. I'll just say, they, hey, they seemed like they got it. 
and they and I asked if they wanted had any questions, and they said no. Hey, Greg wow. Moore, do That's you have an electronic medical record uh, uh, that you have to work with? Yes. And uh, you probably have like a little macro, like the equivalent of a rubber stamp that says your uh, your paragraph there. See, so what I I always individualize these because the courts will. The, that's why the courts <laughs> will not. They will not give templates for consent because every case is unique, every situation is unique, and and. Uh, I was trying know, I to did, lead I, you down I, the garden path there, Chief. Oh, okay. And there you, you go. You, oh, damn. <laughs> uh, I've been looking for the garden path. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, I have a macro. <laughs> <laughs> I figured out how to do it. That's the only reason Greg Moore doesn't have one is he can't figure out how to do it. Hey, Greg, you got wine of the month, Chief. Yeah, I, I got that. And let me just say that when a youngster like uh, Pete Moffat starts talking about gray areas while he's looking at my head on the screen, <laughs> you know, I know what he's talking about is my hair and I'm aging. All right. Probably the best review I've ever seen on wine of the month uh, you're going to ever hear on Wine of the Month, the most complete review of Napa, Napa County, is has been published uh, this month by Parker. It, California has two wine regions, Napa and everything else, and everybody in the world knows Napa so they can charge more money for their product. We have just crossed into La La Land because Screaming Eagle, which I admit is fabulous wine, because the Chinese are buying it so heavily, it's now over $1,500 a bottle. Give me a break. And they can't make as much as the Chinese are requiring. $1,500 bottles, uh, $1,500 a bottle, fabulous. And yet, down the street, I'm telling you, down the street, some of my old favorites, Louis Martini, some of these people are still putting out Cabernets. Great wine, rated high for like four, like 30, 40, and 50 bucks a bottle. If you see those expensive wines, and you know, we all know who they are, uh, forget it. There's nobody who's worth that. Go spend the money on Louis Martini and uh, tell the Chinese to buy all the damn uh, Screaming Eagle they want. But when I saw the prices come out, for the 2011-2012 Cabernets, I said, this country has just gone nuts. Nobody can afford that. So there's one, there's an opinion, Rick. Well, Pete Moffat, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, Greg Moore, uh, as always, thank you as well. You've brought a concept to us that uh, we have never discussed before, and I think it's really quite, quite important, the idea of being... Not negligent, but still losing because you screwed up on the uh, uh, shared decision making and the con and the consent uh, elements. Uh, also, Greg, please say hello to the Lindners. Lindners, please do. I I know they're still seeing patients up there at Madigan with you. And Gregory, thank you as well. I think that it was an interesting issue. And, and gentlemen, last crack. Anything? All right, we're done. This is the November issue of Risk Management Monthly. Thank you all for uh, participating. Yeah, and this is Greg signing off saying this issue will come with uh, kaopectate because oh. this is going to put stool in your pants. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>